0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 237. It's titled Lessons from Brexit. Two and a half years ago, June 2016, episode 113 of Money for the Rest of Us, we talked about Brexit. It was right before the vote. We looked at the economics of immigration, and I haven't said much since then. A lot has happened. It's a great time to provide an update, given the recent vote by the British Parliament rejecting agreed-upon Brexit deal. We're going to look at what happens next and what can we learn from this entire experience. That vote in 2016, 52% of voters wanted to leave or voted to leave the European Union. 48% wanted to stay. It was highly controversial, but that's what the people voted so then it was sort of how to go about doing that. In October 2016, British Prime Minister Theresa May laid down these red lines for Brexit. Here is what she wanted to negotiate. Here were the principles. Leave the single market and the customs union that the essentially the trade the free trade area of the European Union and negotiate new agreements, and the free movement of people, the right of of any member of the European Union to settle, live, and work in the UK. And the third was to escape the jurisdiction of the European courts, that European law would no longer apply to the UK. This was going to be a radical break. That was in October 2016. In March 2017, May invoked Article 50 of the European Union Treaty. And that set a two-year deadline for Britain to leave, to negotiate some type of exit agreement. But March 2019, just in a couple months, that's when the UK had to leave the European Union. In November 2018, after 524 days of negotiation, Theresa May and the head of the, the 27 head of state and government for the European Union agreed to a deal. It was 585 pages long. Here were some of the key sticking points, according to the Guardian. The first was citizen, right, citizen rights. The deal would allow 3 million European citizens in the UK and over a million UK nationals in European Union countries to stay and continue their activities where they're working, where they're living. And they would be able to continue to stay throughout the transition period, which could be as far far away as 2022. So that was the first point. The second was money. How much was this going to cost the UK in order to exit? Because they were a big contributor to the budget for the European Union. And the agreement was that they would contribute until 2020 roughly 39 billion pounds. A third and probably the most difficult issue and one I just wasn't aware of was the Irish border. The Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, voted 56% voted to remain in the European Union. But they're part of the UK. Meanwhile, the Republic of Ireland is already part of the European Union, but they're not necessarily part of the United Kingdom. And so if the UK leaves the European Union, the Republic of Ireland stays, Northern Northern Ireland is part of the UK, then there's a border cutting through the middle of Ireland. There was a border, a hard border, during what they called the Troubles, the 1968 to 1998, where this border was heavily fortified. People and goods that crossed had had to stop at customs. There were identity checks. It was patrolled by the military. And on Good Friday, 1998, there was an agreement to essentially erase that border, to, to start allowing citizens from one side to go to the other side. If the... Britain leaves, there's controversy whether that border should be put back in place. And will that exacerbate difficulties between the two sides? Suddenly we now have this border, and so there's been this idea of a backstop within this overall withdrawal agreement that if the UK and the European Union can't negotiate some type of trade agreement, that there would not be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That in the interest of maintaining peace there, there wouldn't be a hard border. But then if there's no hard border between the two Ireland sides, then potentially there would be a border outside of Ireland. In other words, they would have to be checking goods coming from, from England into Ireland. And it was, it was highly controversial because there's concern about those that want to leave the European Union from the UK that th- this backstop potentially means that UK can't leave. Because they're not able to negotiate a trade agreement and Northern Ireland being part of the UK. And it's just this, this very controversial. Here's how the BBC put it. They said that Theresa May had negotiated this draft deal with the European Union. It would see Northern Ireland staying aligned to some rules of the European Union single market if another solution cannot be found by the end of the transition period in December 2020. That means that goods coming into Northern Ireland would need to be checked to see if they met European Union standards. It would also involve a temporary single custom territory effectively keeping the whole of the UK in the European Union customs union. Unless and until both the EU and the UK agree that it is no longer necessary. And that was a sticking point. The Financial Times commissioned a short film written by Claire Dwyer Hogg and narrated by Irish actor Stephen Ree. Fascinating. I'll link to it in the show notes. But he's walking along the border and he's describing the European Union and it's part of this discussion of this border. The UK wanted to incorporate some technological solution to, the, to this border phenomena and some of the negotiators called it magical thinking, and so this film has one of the underlying themes is, you know, what is magical? Here's what Stephen Ree says, words written by Claire Dwyer-Hogg. Roads that start here and end there, somehow allowing a wound to heal. It's counterintuitive, but nothing to see now is more real than what was there then. Nothing to see means reality. Sounds magical, doesn't it? This is what magic in the day today looks like. The spirit of peace in the normality. Nothing outward as such. No extra levity. Just a gentleness in the modernity. Merely travel across political lines. Work, school, grocery shops. Back again. Magic is the absence sometimes. And there was magic too in 1998. A very good Friday. And all the years in between to make the border disappear, there but not there, a line of imagination that needed imagination to make it exist while unseen. Nobody ever thought that dismantling the barricades like a jigsaw bit by bit was a temporary measure. We thought that concrete was broken down, all the wood burnt, weapons beaten to plows. We hoped by digging out old routes that grass would grow over lines drawn in war rooms, And even though we would know when we drove from one political sphere to the next, we would know, but the earth would not. And so maybe this stale, tight air around the site of fear, death, and human plight would burst, instead allowing a flowing, a growing with time. None of us expected this would be swift, that overnight tensions would lift. No, we are not the type to put faith in magicians. But we want to believe in magic. And this is a start. In mid-January 2019, the British Parliament began debating the withdrawal agreement. The debate went on for five days. And at the end, the deal was rejected. 432 votes against the withdrawal agreement, 202 in favor. May's own conservative party voted against her three to one. The Economist wrote, no plan by any modern British government has been so soundly thrashed as the Brexit deal thrown out by Parliament on January 15th. Next, then, May needed to present a Plan B to Parliament, which she did earlier this week. And then Parliament has time to negotiate and express their will what they think should happen. That includes perhaps a, a softer, what they call Norway plus Brexit, where they remain in the single market and customs union and something along those lines. Perhaps a second referendum that the people would again be able to vote to see if they wanted to stay or to leave. It potentially will require an extension of Article 50, the, the March 29th deadline, to allow more time for negotiation. But there's a problem with that because that March 29th deadline was partly to allow there are upcoming European Union elections in terms of representatives for the European Union and the the UK's representation of the European Union, their seats have already been allocated to other countries. And so there, there's a question of, can they get this resolved before the new European Union leadership representatives are put in place? Brexit, it's a bit of a mess right now. No one knows how it's going to end. This This is unprecedented. But there's things that we can learn, lessons that we can take from the European Union experiment as we as involves trade and the underlying economic principles, the politics. Before we explore that, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know, they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com david. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The first lesson is to recognize that the longer an agreement has been in place, the more difficult it is to leave because it becomes part of the culture. The economist points out that the UK has been part of the European Union in some form for 45 years. And so these agreements become part of the regulatory and institutional framework. It's how British business operates and the government operates from airlines to car makers, banks, to drug firms, police, security services. They become used to these agreements. They become difficult to walk away. The other lesson is, you know, the Leave campaign, the idea was to take back control. The Economist points out, they write, if you take back the right to set your own rules and standards, it will by definition become harder to do business with countries that use different ones. If you want to trade, you'll probably end up following the rules of a more powerful partner, which for Britain means the the EU or America, only without a say in setting them. Brexit, Brexit thus amounts to taking back control in a literal sense, but losing control in a meaningful one. If you leave and you don't want to follow the rules anymore of a of a custom union, of a free trade agreement, then maybe your negotiating power isn't as strong. And you have to, I mean, that's been the whole sticking point with this Irish border. I mean, that that's part of, you leave, and then you have to figure out What about this hard border separating Northern Ireland from the Republic of Ireland? The second takeaway or lesson is something I I came across as, as I was reading Mervyn King's book that I mentioned last week. The End of Alchemy. He quotes or references a professor of international political economy from Harvard University. His name is David Rodek. He writes, the imbalance between the national scopes of governments and the global nature of markets forms the soft underbelly of globalization. A healthy global economic system necessitates a delicate compromise between these two. the the sovereignty of governments and globalization. There's a conflict there. He calls it the fundamental political trilemma of the world economy. He writes, we cannot simultaneously pursue democracy, national determination, and economic globalization. If we want to push globalization further, we have to give up either the nation-state or democratic politics. If we want to maintain and deepen democracy, we have to choose between the nation-state and the international economic integration. And if we want to keep the nation-state and self-determination, we have to choose between deepening democracy and deepening globalization. Our troubles have their roots and our reluctance to face up to these ineluctable choices. Britain, the people voted to leave. That was democracy. But the representatives of the nation state are having difficulty negotiating how that exit will come about. And the idea of globalization is hurt as they pull out of of this agreement. The UK government, along with the Bank of England, estimated what the economic hit would be in terms of leaving the European Union. And in all scenarios, whether it was a soft exit or a hard exit without any agreement, the economy would shrink, that it would not be, potentially with a hard exit, would go into a recession, but it would not grow as fast that there would be an economic hit or slowdown because there's more friction now. There's more friction in terms of trade. To be a full member of the European Union meant giving up some of your autonomy as a nation. You give up your own currency, your own fiat currency, and effectively adopt a foreign currency, which means you don't have the flexibility to run huge, budget deficits because you've agreed to keep them under a certain level. You certainly can't participate. You can't do your own quantitative easing in terms of creating more money to try to keep your interest rates down. You don't have the, the you don't have the control of the monetary policy that all resides with the European central bank. And so and there's there's talk of more banking unions. In other words, globalization within a, a union, a financial union, often means for it to work, more political union. And that's been one of the sticking points. The the, the whole idea is that you within the UK, you, we're giving up some of our sovereignty to be part of the European Union. And, and is it worth it? And the UK didn't even give up their currency. They kept the pound. They kept their independent central bank, the Bank of England, which, as I mentioned last week, Mervyn King was head of from 2003 to 2013. He points out another problem with global trade. It leads to disequilibrium because eventually countries try to do what's in their best interest. Yes, they want to trade globally, but... If they can get, if they don't allow, for example, currencies to trade freely, the periods where China kept their currency weak, that builds up big trade deficits. They had a big trade surplus with other nations, including one they continue to have with the U.S. And every trade deficit, when the U.S. runs a trade deficit, With other countries, that means there's a capital account surplus. That means other countries have dollars that they want to invest in the U.S., holding U.S. government debt primarily. And the trade deficit that the U.S. runs, that means households and businesses are spending more money on bringing goods in then businesses are receiving export. There's a deficit. These trade deficits need to be financed somehow, which means debt balances build up. Greece's huge debt balance, much of it private sector debt balance, was because the households and businesses, they could get easy credit, but they're running a huge trade deficit with Germany. That needed to be financed because if you're buying more than you're selling, then you have to borrow the money. And the only way to get out of this debt is to run a trade surplus. So you're bringing in more income and can pay down that debt. But we're not there yet. With Greece, which was why we're always sort of the European Union is negotiating, lending, and extending this debt. So you get these this disequilibrium, this debt buildup, which eventually is going to have to be resolved. They're going to have to forgive some of Greece's debt, or they're just going to keep kicking the can down the road. So that's where there's this trilemma. There's this conflict between globalization, the nation-state, and, and democracy. Danny Roddick writes, Even though it is possible to advance both democracy and globalization, the trilemma suggests this requires the creation of a global political community that is vastly more ambitious than anything we have seen to date or are likely to experience soon. It would call for global rulemaking by democracy. Supported by accountability mechanisms that go far beyond what we have at present. Democratic global governance of this sort is a chimera. There are too many differences among nation states, I shall argue, for their needs and preferences to be accommodated within common rules and institutions. His view is just economic unions don't work. Because nation states are unwilling, that people will be unwilling to support the level of political and financial integration that it requires. And that's what we're seeing in the European Union. Too many differences. It's the differences between the members that has led to conflict this is why the UK wants to leave. And it also means, despite the desire for free trade, trade will never be free. There will always be conflicts. That's why the U.S. government shut down right now. This is about immigration. It's about trade. This whole wall controversy. This will always be part of trade and economy. There will always be conflicts, and there'll always be some, some form of terrorists. It's never You'll you never get complete globalization and free trade. because somebody's going to get hurt. The pie may be bigger, but somebody is getting hurt, either another country or individuals within a country, and they want to be protected. And that leads to all kinds of conflict and disequilibriums. So it'll be with us, and that's what we can learn. It will always be with us. We'll see how the Brexit ends over the next few months. This is episode 237. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. And I'll send you a weekly email with that week's show notes as well as an article, as I do each week, on that particular week's episode or on some other topic, This is some of the best writing I do each week. I'd love to share it with you. You can sign up for my free insider's guide at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk, risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.